0: Welcome to the Governance and Leadership Demystified podcast, where we share educational and inspirational stories that delve deeper into the governance and leadership journey. Without further ado, introducing your host, the CEO and founder of Synergy Executive and Boards Consulting Group, Trish Mendewo.
1: I am so honored to have Dr. Wendy Kukia on our show today. Dr. Wendy Kukia is one of Canada's leading experts in disruptive technologies, innovation processes, and diversity, with more than 200 published papers on technology, innovation, and management. She is the co author of the bestseller Innovation Nation Canadian Leadership from Java to Jurassic Park. How exciting! Wendy serves on a host of boards in the private nonprofit sectors and has helped create and grow several successful startups and social ventures, including Fibits, Think to Think and Growing North. She is the director of the Diversity Institute, which addresses evidence-based strategies for inclusion. Welcome, Wendy. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's it's such an honor, and I'm looking forward to a great conversation this morning. Before we start, can you help us a little bit understand what you do at the Diversity Institute? And what is the Diversity Institute?
0: So the Diversity Institute, um, we call it a think and do tank at the Ted Rogers School of Management. We do research, but the focus of our research is to inform evidence-based approaches to driving change. So we have a 100 full-time um, staff now, and we have a number of big projects. The Future Skills Centre is one of them. The Women Entrepreneurship Knowledge Hub is another. We have a research um, group that does diversity leads and our work on the 50-30 challenge, many other projects. And then we have a unit that does training. They do training on digital skills, entrepreneurship, leadership, and so on. So
1: lots going on in the diversity institute. Yeah, and I think you also lead. You did a big research a few years ago when it comes to boards. Can you share a little bit about that?
0: Sure. So we've been doing research on representation on boards since 2008. Um, now Senator Ratna Amitvar was with Maitri at the time, and we partnered with Maitri in civic action to look at representation on um, boards and in leadership roles across sectors in the greater Toronto area. And it was, I think, the first study of its kind that looked not just at the representation of women on boards, but also the representation of racialized people. And what that study showed was that, as you would expect, women were underrepresented. But racialized people were far less represented even than women in a city where half the population was racialized. And we have replicated that study year after year and in other cities, Montreal, Halifax, Ottawa, London, um, Calgary, Vancouver, and a couple of other places um, to track what's been happening with the representation of women and racialized people on boards. And about a year and a half ago, we did the first study of um, disaggregated data of racialized people, which looks specifically at uh, black people on boards. And, you know, it showed once again, that even in a, a city like Toronto, uh, where racialized people are half the population, white women outnumbered racialized women, Uh, 12 or 13 to 1 on corporate boards. But when we looked at Black representation across the country of 1,600 corporate board members, we found nine Black men and four Black women. So it was very important, I think, as part of the discussion around, even and this was before the the George Floyd murder, of the importance of, of disaggregating data because sometimes the categories conceal important differences.
1: Yeah, for sure. If you, if you look at the East, you over-index for, for, for you know, Blacks and other visible minorities. And I'm in the West, and we over-index for, for Asians. But either way, if you look, if you disaggregate the data, you find that here, the Asians are very underrepresented on boards as well, just like your study showed over there we have a lot of work don't we We have a long way to go yeah so can you tell us what strategies would you suggest for boards to put in place in order to create environments that can welcome this subset of the population that we are talking about
0: so i think you know a diversity and inclusion strategy like any other strategy has to be comprehensive uh, if you're looking specifically at the representation on boards, obviously setting targets becomes important. Making it in, an intentional decision to increase representation on your on your board is a first step, and communicating that is is of course important. But then you really have to think about your processes, and it's not just a question of recruitment, although that's important, because so many boards simply find uh, candidates through social networks and those social networks tend to reinforce the same old people. People who golf together went to the same private school. So you have to be very intentional with your outreach strategy. Some organizations will hire a consultant. You have to ensure that your skills matrix embeds diversity and inclusion. But then you also have to think about once you bring more diverse members onto your board, How are you going to make them feel welcome? And that's sometimes more difficult. You have to ensure that the board is trained um, and understands the ways in which uh, their traditional practices might unintentionally exclude people. You know, understanding unconscious bias and privilege and, and microaggressions in particular. Thinking about policies and practices. How do you celebrate? You know, if you bring Muslims on your board, are you going to serve alcohol? What are you going to do to respect people's dietary and religious differences? So there are a lot of nuances, I think, around creating inclusion, making sure people have mentors, because often boards have unspoken rules. And I've seen cases where people have come in without being properly um, coached and not really understanding what the norms or the, the um The styles of interaction are for the board so you know some boards have consent agendas for instance where it is not expected that board members will debate every issue on the agenda it's assumed that the committees have made recommendations and for the most part the board will um, approve those recommendations if you don't explain that well to people they may come in and feel that they're be they're doing their job by asking a lot of questions or or rediscussing issues that have already been taken care of at the committee level. And sometimes there are assumptions made that people will um, understand these things without um, them being explained. So you have to be really intentional. But I would argue that just looking at boards or senior leadership roles requires that you look at every aspect of the organization. Because think about it, if you're not considering the the, the, the pipeline, if you're not considering the base of the pyramid and how people get to the top, um, you're, you're not going to have what you want to see in those senior roles. And I'm even arguing now with COVID, we have to start further upstream because if kids aren't graduating from high school and they're not going to university, because their education has been disrupted. We are not gonna see them as CEOs of companies in a few years. And so we need a real systemic look at how you build the pipeline and the pool and how you your HR policies are important, your culture is important. But I would argue you have to embed diversity and inclusion metrics in everything you do. Who are you That's serving? Sure. How are you serving them? How are your products and services being designed? Your procurement policies? How much shelf space are you giving to diverse entrepreneurs? All of those things together, to me, are really critical to get the change that we want to see.
1: Yeah, for sure. People cannot just silo diversity and inclusion and think it's just this one thing that they can tick off the box, right? You have They have to apply it horizontally. You say the very... Um, big word here which i say big because it is the most important intentional intentional does everything if they do if they approach dni with no intention and with no purpose you find that it fails and of course research that was done a few years ago showed that 70% of the initiatives for from north america do fail and that's when they do it without a purpose and when they don't do it intentionally. You also talk about how they need to create that safe environment and welcoming environment in the boardroom. Can you, can you tell us from your perspective how they can foster an anti racist environment in the boardroom?
0: Well, I think that, you know, the first step is people have to understand racism. And and part of the challenge is that those discussions are often uncomfortable because some people feel if you're discussing racism, you're calling them a racist. And so there's a lot of work. You know, I'm on the board at Women's College Hospital that um, that launched a, a very specific anti-Black racism strategy. And it started with some uncom- uncomfortable conversations and raising people's awareness and understanding of things like um, historic discrimination, systemic discrimination, um, how privilege plays out, how how the differences are in the experiences of someone who is white versus someone who is black, and all of the other uh, intervening factors. So you have to. You know, you have to get people opening their minds and, and really considering what they know and they, and they don't know. You have to also make sure that the, um, the processes and practices on the board don't reinforce exclusion. So you can invite someone to the table, but if you don't give them space to participate, What's the point of being there? And, you know, for many years, women talked about the, quote, echo chamber, where a woman would say something in a meeting and no one reacted. And a few minutes later, a man would say exactly the same thing. And everyone would go, what a great idea. The invisibility and the, 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 the way in which women were not listened to is something that we understand. Our research suggests that the same phenomena applies to often newcomers, racialized people, certainly those who are Black, where they are not, they may be at the table, but they are not included in the discussions in a serious way. If you're thinking about um, bringing, for example, Indigenous people onto the board, one of the points that's been made to me is often the board processes the ways in which arguments are had and decisions are made are very alien to Indigenous ways of knowing and decision making. And so you have to really be prepared to dig into the structures and to the habits and to the processes and the policies that you may take for granted that have that have racism embedded in them.
1: Yeah, for sure. You mentioned echo chamber. Um, I often share also from the perspective of the Obama administration, I don't know, did you hear about that? The Obama administration women had the same experiences where they would go into the meeting and they would say something, and then a week later, a man says it, and oh my gosh, it's the best idea ever. So they created the, the amplification. They talk to each other and they said, when I say a point, can you say it? Can you say it? And then they started doing that over and over and amplifying each other until they could be heard. So, you know, it's the same scenario here, but we need to ensure that when other voices are sitting at the table, they are heard. Oh, you also mentioned microaggressions. Have you heard of the ouch technique? I uh, No. Oh, we're going to be actually doing a workshop on the out technique. The out technique is a technique that it's actually started got started because of Black people and other visible minorities being in the boardroom and then microaggressions being done, especially for Black women. If they react, it's like, oh, you're being hostile, oh, you're being angry. So, you know, you, you simply say, ouch, to get the attention. And then you can, you know, proceed by saying, that hurt or you know explain what the feeling came from that expression um, it's a very very great technique i will send some information you might be interested in, um, your team might be interested in knowing that because anyone can use the ALT technique um, especially in a boardroom setting as well thank you for that so you have done so much in the research area in innovation you're also very present in the social justice area as an advocate how has that manifested on the boardroom in the boardroom or on the boards that you currently sit on?
0: Well, it, it really varies dramatically. So, until recently, I was on the Canadian Civil Liberties Association board. That's a board where social justice is basically the raison d'être. You know, I I am still on the Women's College Hospital board. Again, social justice is baked into the to the ethos of the organization, but there's also recognition that they can always always do better, especially on issues related to indigenous people and and race. I also sit on the, the Remap board, which is an um, incubator focused on the future of uh, the future of manufacturing. Now that's a very technology oriented board; it's very corporate sector dominated, and so on. So social justice is not baked in. To the mission or the mandate however um, partly you know because of my influence I suppose and partly because it's actually a, a woman dominated um, organization they've put a particular focus on um, gender parity and and increased diversity they've signed on to the 50-30 challenge they're Building uh, diversity and inclusion training into their incubator for all the companies that they represent, and so on. So it's really, you know, the boards I sit on, and there are a few others. I'm I'm chair of the board of Green Igloo, which builds um, which builds greenhouses in uh, in the far north, and there, of course, there's a huge focus on indigenous people and and also um, an authentic engagement with. Uh, with communities. I'm on the board of uh, the Lifelong Leadership Institute, which focuses on uh, educational opportunities for um, Caribbean and African youth. So again, social justice is, is, is built into that. And I've just been appointed to the board of the Federation of African Canadian Economics. So again, social justice is built in there. But I've also been on boards of startups and on Tech research and other boards. And my experience is, you have to meet people where they are. You have to understand where they are on the diversity and inclusion um, spectrum. So, for example, Women's College Hospital. When I came on, <laughs> gender was not an issue. In fact, bringing men on the board was was kind of transformational. But race most certainly was. Class most certainly was. And it took a lot of work, frankly. To, to get the board to where it is today, which is far more diverse and representative than it was you know, seven or eight years ago when I, when I joined. So I find that it's a, it's a continuous improvement process where um, you know, some boards are, are, are serving organizations where social justice is embedded and very clear. But other boards um, are more likely to respond to the business case for diversity, to to arguments that show how addressing diversity and inclusion will help them uh, advance their um, organizational objectives. Or there are some cases where the boards have a, a vague idea that they should be doing something, but really don't know where to start. So... I think in doing this work, and I'm sure you've found this as well, trying to figure out where the entry points are and what the levers are that will help drive change is probably part of the hardest um, work that you have to do is it because talking to people who think exactly like you think doesn't drive change. It's figuring out ways to bring other people um onto the program that that is, is what we need to focus on in my view.
1: Oh, you, you hit the nail on the head there. I often tell the ones that don't know where to start, to say they have to start with the individual journey. I like to do that um, diversity continuum so they themselves can identify where they are at on that continuum. Do they understand you know, whether they are in denial or are they you know in the acceptance phase, where are they at? And after they understand it as individuals, then they can start working, you know, as a whole, right? But it, it is important to have that baseline for sure. So what mistakes have you seen in your board journey? And and it'll be interesting for you to share those so that other people that might be heading the same direction might maybe say, let's watch out for that. What are some of the biggest Mistakes or aha moments that you have um, experienced.
0: So, do you mean as a board member, or yes. do you
1: mean on your as, board journey? Um.
0: Well, I, I. mean, I almost got kicked off Women's College because I didn't understand the culture, and I hadn't gone to private school, and I wasn't. I wasn't. Oh, I wasn't a well turned out lady. Um, so, in the in the initial stages, you know, I argued. If I disagreed with something, I would argue. And it took me a while to to realize that the culture was you have the conversations before the board meetings. And it wasn't until, uh, you know, one of the chairs pulled me aside and gave me a little lecture that I really had to, I had to decide, do I really want to play in the sandbox or or. Do I want to pack up my marbles and go somewhere else? And I decided it was worth trying to um, try to figure out how to drive change in an environment that was very unfamiliar. I mean, I remember one conversation where we're talking about increasing diversity on the board. (laughs) One of the women looked at me and said, I'm not a racist. (laughs) I'm Not a racist. But, you know, we need people on the board who have networks and influence and money, right? In the yes. city of Toronto, yes. where half the population's racialized. And it wasn't ill intention. It was just from her um, from her world, you know, she didn't see where the opportunities were or what the business case was or how we could move this, this agenda forward. And if you look at the board now, as I said, it's, I mean, the, the outgoing chair uh, last time was an Indigenous woman. The the incoming chair is a racialized woman. So we've really cracked that that nut. I'm, Paulette Senior, who many people will know as a, a leader in the Black community, was the chair before me. So, you know, Women's College
1: Hospital Board today is very, very different than it was... Um, I'm um, curious, though, if it's different. It sounds like the board might have had their number one agenda is fundraising, like many of the hospital foundation boards.
0: I wouldn't say that's true, although that's Mm -hmm. certainly been an issue on the foundation. But again, the foundation is led by a Black woman um, Mm -hmm. now as well, Jennifer uh, Bernard, who's transformed and raised more money, I think, than anybody imagined possible. But I think for sure there was a notion that influence and money are are important for um, board members and that's not unusual with hospitals or even with with post-secondary institutions often those things are prioritized over other other uh, assets that people could bring in terms of uh, you know, connections, insights, understanding, and so on. So it's it's an ongoing issue. In fact, I would say class bias um, probably is as deep um, a barrier, no, is a, a taller barrier
1: yes.
0: as as um, other dimensions of of diversity because. The way in which you present yourself, the way in which you engage with people, your comfort level in sitting at a dinner table with 16 pieces of cutlery or even talking about, you know, what's happening in the stock market. All of those things are often very much a function of your upbringing and your your. Um, The privilege that you have as a result of having, you know, university educated or professional parents, parents who spoke English, uh, lots of money, all of those things. And they can really shape the culture and the styles of interaction on 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 boards. And, you know, lots of people, I don't know if this has been your experience, but lots of people talk about the Canadian sandwich, which is a very Mm -hmm. sort of Anglo-Saxon. style of communication where people will say oh it's so great to have you here Trish just wonderful and you add so much and you're so smart and you're so beautiful and you're so (laughs) so accomplished there's just this one little thing that we think you should work on but Trish just (laughs) great to have you you're wonderful you're awesome right and and (laughs) It it was actually a Syrian refugee who said You know, in my culture, you listen to the "you're awesome, you're awesome, you're awesome," and you can really easily miss there's that one little thing. But in the Canadian sandwich, there's that one little thing is actually the thing people are trying to tell you. You have to listen for the back. And I grew up in an environment. I, I, I mean, my my father was East European, where we're far more direct. And you know, I've always been inclined to say what I think in in a very direct way. And those cultural differences, which I associate in part with part with ethnicity, but also with with uh, class, are really hard to navigate and understand. Like there are so many nuances, and especially in a place like Toronto, which is so multicultural and so diverse, um, it, it, it's a challenge. And if you have a board that is very homogeneous and it doesn't matter if it's all women, all white women or, or all white men, but it's homogeneous in terms of background orientation, socialization, culture, values. Everyone golfs in the same place, went to the same private school. That, that creates a real challenge for somebody who's different to even understand how to carry on a conversation because often there's not enough shared experience to be able to make small talk, for example.
1: Exactly, and, so- and they'll feel like, like an outsider looking in when they get on there. You mentioned that class bias. I am finding that on the high-profile nonprofit boards currently, Some of the people, like people like me, I should say, are not even invited because they look at my hair, they listen to my accent, and they don't want you before you even get there because their biases tell them you don't feed that class, so you're not even invited to the table at the time. So it takes people like you being there so that you can champion for um, for other voices. Because the fact that I have kinky hair doesn't mean that my brain doesn't, you know, <laughs> it, doesn't think that. Work. Yeah. it doesn't mean that I don't have the same connections, right? So what advice would you give those boards that are still very much um, looking the same that need to diversify? What advice would you give?
0: Well, you know, you have to become, as you said, the first thing is you have to really become aware of your biases and your privilege. And I think privilege is, of course, associated with people who are white. But I think there are other forms of of privilege. You know, if you grew up in an environment where you didn't have to work 25 hours a week to put yourself through school, if your parents both spoke English, if they could help you with your homework. Um, if you didn't have to contribute to the rent, in order, you know, there are a lot of dimensions of, of of bias. If you could, you know, hold hands with your partner in the street and not worry about being killed, and you know that can apply to interracial relationships or gay relationships. Like there are lots of people who can't express. Um, affection for their partner or if you've never been followed around you know in a store or if you've never been treated badly by a bank or an institution because of the color of your skin or your accent or whatever if you haven't had those experiences you may not be able to understand <clears throat> why people who are different from you may present themselves differently may react to things differently. Um, and so I think that, that self-awareness and understanding is, is certainly the, the fundamental um, uh, first step. But I do think it's, it's also engaging with the community, getting involved. You know, I hear so often, um, you know, I love women. I'm married to a woman. I love her. The but there are no women. We'd love to have a woman on the board, but there are none. You hear that so often, right? And yet if you look at the numbers, some boards have 40% women and some have zero, the corporate zeros. So so what is the difference between the corporate boards with 40% women and the corporate zeros? It's policies, it's practices, it's engagement, it's rethinking what your criteria are. And it comes back to what both of us said around intentionality and really having a clear sense of where you're trying to to get to as opposed to a general sense that, oh, you know, shareholders are now concerned about ESGs, so we better do something. You really have to think this through.
1: Yeah, for sure. You know, our organization, Synergy Executive and Boards Consulting Group was formed just for those people that we're saying, we can find people of color. There are no educated people of color, whether it's for um, private boards, you know, the CBCA boards, whether it's for nonprofits, high profile or small, you know, our organization is there to help them diversify because we truly feel that all voices are needed and that when you've got different voices, there's so much richness that comes through that. And of course, it is the right thing to do, right? Any last
0: words, Wendy? No, other than thank you so much, and you're doing great work. And I think, you know, I feel like we, I feel like we're at a turning point. I do feel that the last two years, um, in spite of the the horrendous impact of of COVID, uh, in some respects, there are there are just things that have been transformational. You know, the murder of George Floyd. I think opened people's eyes in a way that years of of data on um, on racism didn't. I think the discovery of the the bodies of 215 um, Indigenous children in unmarked graves hit people in a way that you know their their high level knowledge of uh, murdered murdered and missing Indigenous women or or truth and reconciliation really hadn't hadn't uh, affected them to the same extent. So, you know, I've seen evidence that people are committed in a way that they haven't been before. It's just I hope that we can build in um, accountability frameworks and transparency and ensure that these organizations can see the path Moving forward, that they have access to the pools of talent that they say they can't find and that we don't slip backwards, you know, because something else has become important in the news. So I really feel I've been doing this stuff for a long time and I feel like we are potentially at a really important turning point. So I'm feeling more optimistic than I have for years, but it's going to take hard work by a lot of us. To keep the momentum going.
1: You, the way that what a way to end us. There is hope, and we can achieve that diversity that we are all looking for. Thank you so much, Wendy. If people want to get hold of you, how can they find you?
0: Uh, well, my email is w c u k i r at ryerson.ca and uh, or you can google the diversity institute and you'll find your way to me somehow and i'm on linkedin
1: wonderful i actually say they should google you because so much content also comes up when your name shows up and they can educate themselves with so much thank you so much for joining me today wendy thank you for having me please go to spotify or apple podcast to subscribe rate, and review as your feedback helps us in creating new content that continues to speak directly to you. Remember, good governance is the epitome of good leadership. Bye for now.